What have you done since last Sunday's sermons? You were here, weren't you, when Don Crisp in the morning took us to Isaiah chapter 6 and preached about the majesty and the wonder of God. And we saw that God is holy and full of glory and that he is so far above us and that every part of our praise should be his. And Don reminded us, didn't he, how casually we as Christians can sometimes come before this great God without truly taking on board the glory of his goodness. So this week, I wonder, have you been striving to take that on board? Have you been thinking on how holy and how good and how great our God is? Have you been praying differently, realizing that you, like Isaiah, are this sin-filled worm before the God who created you and gives you your breath and your life? The God who the seraphim cover themselves in the presence of. Have you thanked him this week that the only way we can approach this God of amazing holiness is by his equally amazing mercy. And you were here also in the evening, weren't you, when Trevor Baker spoke from Genesis chapter 32, encouraging us to make time to be refreshed in the presence of God. There was a wonderful parallel between the two sermons last week. Trevor reminded us from the life of Jacob that praying isn't simply saying our prayers, but it's seeking deeply this same God of holiness and mercy until you are rekindled by the warmth of his love and you're made bold by the strength of his might. So, these past six days, have you spent time looking at God's word, speaking to him in prayer and looking to him for your strength? Because Trevor also showed us, didn't he, that this same God allows us to reach the point where we have nothing left so that we can do nothing but look to him for our strength. Because God knows that we need his strength every hour, even when we don't realize it. So, this past week, have you made use of last week's sermons? Because they are like ammunition to refuel you for the week ahead, are they not? If they aren't, then what good are they? What's the point of them? And if I may put it that bluntly, why do you bother turning up for them? For some of us, maybe Sunday should start at 11.30 instead of 10.15. Is that you, I wonder? Or have you made time this week to look back on what was preached last week in order to deepen your knowledge and understanding of God? You see, as we come to this section of Proverbs, we see a man who knew just how weak and how feeble his knowledge and understanding of God was. But he strove towards two things. Seeing himself more clearly and knowing God more deeply. He wanted 
to achieve those two things in his life, no matter what it might cost, to see who he really is in a clearer way and to also know God in a deeper way than he did before. Now, virtually nothing is known about this man, Agor, who wrote this proverb, or the people he's writing to, Ithiel and Eucal. We can assume that they are Agor's um, students and he is their mentor, or possibly they're even his sons. But either way, Agor is urging them to want these things as he wants them. Now, there are four things that we'll look at from this passage. There are two truths to begin with, and then two requests that Agor makes of God. Now, the first thing we'll look at is from verses 1 to 3, and it's this. The foolishness in you. But before we begin this point, may I just say, hold on, because it doesn't end here. We aren't just left here in the foolishness of ourselves, but instead we'll see that God's goodness comes to us in order to change us and make us more like his son. But verse 1, the words of Agor, the son of Jacob, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal, surely I am more stupid than any man. I do not have the understanding of a man. Now, just as the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, saw the abundant grace of God and then realized his own wretchedness and vileness and could do nothing but cry out, I am the chief of sinners. And just as Isaiah, as we saw last week, looked into heaven and saw the glory of God, realized his own vileness and unworthiness and could do nothing but cry, woe is me. I am undone. So, Agor, realizing his own foolishness and stupidity, which we all possess, could do nothing else but cry, Surely I am more stupid than any man. I do not have the understanding of a man. Now, how many of us would acknowledge these things? We'd agree with Paul, we'd agree with Isaiah. We'd agree with Agor. But then we actually think we're pretty great. We would nod our, nod our head and say, yes, I am a fool. My whole self is foolish. My whole self is, is weak. My whole self is sinful. My whole self is vile. But yet every day we exalt that self like a peacock displaying its feathers. You're happy to agree with the Bible that yourself is weak and vile, but more happy to show off that self in front of others. You acknowledge that it is true, but it has no bearing on the way you actually think or behave. Or instead, does this cut to your heart? You know your foolishness and you feel your foolishness and it affects the way, you view, the way you view yourself every day, even from the moment you wake up. You treat others differently because of this. You speak to them with humility and patience because you know how slow you can be to learn. You think of others with 
tenderness and love because you know that you're no better than anyone. And you choose not to parade your own opinions because you know how fallible and insignificant you are. And so how humble and modest then was Agor who wasn't afraid to admit even to his students, to people who looked up to him, that he was nothing special, that he was weak and foolish. I wonder, how are you doing in that regard? And why don't you strive every day to remind yourself of who you are and see yourself more clearly, that you would have constantly in your mind how weak you are? and how much you need God's grace. Now, Agor continues in verse 3, I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. Now, though Agor knows God and is evidently a well-known man of wisdom, being included in the book of Proverbs, when he thinks upon all that God is, his great power, his great authority, his great wonder, He feels he knows so little. But despite that, above all, he treasures knowing God. And how precious it is to know God and know godly wisdom. We read in Jeremiah chapter 9. You could turn there if you like, or listen. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord... Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man glory in his might. Don't let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in all the earth, for in these things I delight. I wonder, do you glory in that? Do you delight in knowing God? And Solomon, earlier on in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 8, verses 10 to 11, writes these words, Receive my instruction, and not silver, Receive knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than rubies. And all the things that one may desire cannot be compared with her. So you could know intricate details of great wonders of science, or you could know the ins and outs of pivotal moments in history, And you could amaze me for hours with facts that you've stored up for yourself. But if you cannot give me wisdom and knowledge of God that you have gained for yourself from his word, then you are stupid. Are you not? To know so much and yes, know so little. See, Agor sees that. And he's urging Ithiel and Eucal to see what he sees and to take on board the things that he has taken on board. Now, tell me, those of you who are parents, 
those of you who are grandparents, what lessons are you teaching your children? Do your children know, because you have taught them, that wisdom from God and knowledge of God are the greatest things that they could ever possess? Even if they don't achieve any awards at school, but they know God. Even if they don't pass a single exam, but they know God. Even if they don't ever get a high-paying job or a fantastic house or a decent car, but they know God. Even if they are never great in the eyes of the world, but they know God, they are the greatest in his kingdom. Jesus says so himself in Matthew chapter 18. Do your children know that? Does the way that you live your life teach them that? Or does the way that you live your life teach them that all of those things which will burn up and come to nothing, they won't live past tomorrow, does your life teach them that all of those things are greater and more worthwhile than the kingdom of God? which will never fade. You see, all of the greatness in the things that we live for can never compare to the greatness in God. And that's our second point from verses four to six. We've seen the foolishness in you and now verses four to six, the greatness in God. Just like Isaiah's vision that Don preached for us last week. Here too, we see in verse 4 the great majesty and the authority and the power that God has. Who has ascended into heaven or descended from heaven? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters up in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name, if you know? Now, verse 4 is a verse that would fit very well in the final chapters of the book of Job, if you know the book of Job well, from chapter 38 onwards. See, Job, at that point, has lost everything good in his life because God has allowed it to be taken away. All of Job's friends weigh in on what they think the reason is of what God has done. But then God himself shows up and he sets the record straight. You can turn there. Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this, speaking of his friends, who is this who darkened counsel by words without knowledge. Now, Job, prepare yourself. Or the word in Hebrew is, gird up your loins, dress for action like a man of war. I will question you and you shall answer me. Verse four, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Come on, surely you know, Job. Who stretched the line upon it? 
To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds in its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this you may come, but no further, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 16, have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended, Job, the breadth of the earth? Tell me if you know this. See, I, I love that. God is saying to Job, I made all of existence, everything that you know, everything that you're aware of in this universe, even the brain that you have to be aware of it, is all something I've thought up. It's all my creation. It was designed, it was invented, it was created by me. I thought it all up and I control it. Tell me how it works. Go on, explain to me, says God, how it happens. You don't know. You can see creation moving about and amazing natural phenomena happening all around you, but you don't know why it happens or how it happens. But I do, because I created it and I control it. Now, Job, you see also your suffering and your sorrows that surround you, but you don't know the why or the how, but I do, because I allow it and I control it. So because of that, Job, trust me. I'm not your enemy, I'm your father and you are my son. So put your hope in me. You see, this same God of amazing holiness and power is also the same God who comes near to us and delights when we put our trust in him. And isn't it interesting that Agor should ask at the end of that verse, what is his son's name, if you know? Because this great and mighty God isn't mysterious. He isn't far off, but he's come near. Agor says, no one has ever ascended into heaven, nor descended down from heaven. And yet, a few thousand years later, a man from Nazareth would say, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, speaking of himself. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, was born, lived, died and rose in order to clear the path to bring us to our Father. And as Trevor reminded us last week, it's in the face of Christ that we see God. Do you know him? This same God of amazing power and authority over creation, over all things, 
It's the same God who comes near to you as Christ and delights when you put your trust in him. And with that, we read verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You see, the reason why every word of God is pure is because God himself is pure. You and I spew out horrible words, cutting words, thoughtless words, because they fly out of our sinful hearts. But God's word, what he says, is life-giving because God is life-giving. What God says is wise because he is wise. Everything that God says is trustworthy because he is trustworthy. So never doubt what God has said. Never doubt what God has promised in his word, but instead lean everything that you have on them. And then you'll find that he becomes like a shield to you when you do. But the question is, when do you need God to be a shield for you? When do you need God to be a shield for you? In times of sorrow? When things are difficult? Every day? Don't think that you only need a shield when there's suffering. Don't only think you need a shield in in times of trouble, but you need him every day. Putting your trust in him, verse 5, isn't just a one-time thing in a moment when you're desperate, but it's an ongoing trust. It's an everyday type trust. It's a peacetime and wartime trust. So I wonder, where is your shield this morning? Is he lying on the floor next to you? Is he on the shelf where you last left him? Or do you have a firm grip on him right now? If you don't, pick him up. Trust in him. The great God of the universe who created everything that we know offers to be your defender, who you can lean upon. And in him, is the greatest of joys and you need him. So pick him up. Why would you leave him to the side? Lean everything you have upon this God because there is so much greatness in him. Now, after seeing these two truths, the foolishness in you and the greatness in God, we now see Hegel's point in verse 6 of not adding to God's words, bringing him to the first of his two requests that he makes of God. We see the first in verse 7 and the start of verse 8, and that is, let me not be deceived. In verse 7 he writes, two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die. There are so many things, aren't there, that we desire of God 
But notice how these two things that Agor requests both have the same goal. And that is knowing God in a deeper way than he already does. He wants to clear the path with these two requests so that he can see and know this great God deeper. So what is the first thing? Start of verse 8. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Do you have that desire in you? Or reality day to day? Is this something you've never really thought to pray? Well, what does Agor mean? He only wants the pure words of God that he's spoken of. He only wants those pure things that God says, those promises, those truths. He wants them to fill his mind. He doesn't want the false assurances of idols. He doesn't want the empty promises of sin. He doesn't want the vain ramblings of people. He just wants God's words because he knows all other things are no good for him. They're no benefit. They can't save his soul. They can't give him true wisdom or true knowledge. See, false gods are dead and useless. There's no doubt that all the nations around Agor were worshipping chunks of stone and metal in man-made religions that assure so much. But Agor was a man who knew. And Agor was a man who could pray, no. God's words alone are pure. So, Father, remove these false assurances from me. Also, empty promises of sin. They can be so deceitful and so alluring, can't they? So captivating. They promise to give you everything that you desire right now. John Piper once wrote, The role of God's word is to feed faith's appetite for God. And in doing this, it weans my heart off the deceptive taste of sin. And the sword of the spirit carves the sugar coating off the poison of lust. So I see it for what it is. And by the grace of God, its alluring power is broken. Agor knows that. He says, no, only God's words are pure. So, Father, remove from me these empty promises of sin. Also, the vain ramblings of people, they can so easily distract and draw away from what's most important. And you become so focused on something that won't matter one bit in eternity. And Agor knows, no, only God's words are pure. So, Father, remove these vain ramblings far from me. And he knows that God will do it because for those who put their trust in him, God will be a shield for them to fend off falsehood and lies. You see, there is a battle every day that Agor knows he needs to fight. A fight to constantly see himself clearer and to know God deeper. And he'll do whatever for that to happen. 
may we want this. May you want this the way that Agor does so that you have a clear view of God with no distractions or no lies or falsehoods or errors clouding your vision and with nothing obstructing your view of him because it's your desire to know him deeper. Now that's the first thing that Agor desires of God. But what's the second? Our last point. Verses, the second half of verse 8 to verse 9. Agor is ultimately praying, let me not forget you. I remember once hearing a pastor say that this isn't a typical kind of prayer that you hear today. Second half of verse 8. Give me neither poverty, give me neither riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, so that I won't be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And so that I won't be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. When was the last time you heard someone pray like that? That God wouldn't give them too much? That he wouldn't give them too little, but just give them just enough. Just what they need in order to praise God in the best way that they possibly can. Now, we live in a culture, don't we, of why not buy this? What's the harm in buying that? But, you know, that is the total opposite of what Agor is requesting. The complete opposite. He's saying, if I had all of these possessions, all of this wealth, I wouldn't trust myself to not turn from God and start neglecting God. Agor's saying, I know I could so easily get caught up in the pleasures of riches that I could start to lose a taste for God and his pleasures. And that's exactly what happened to Israel around the time of Hosea the prophet. God said to Hosea in chapter 13, verse 6, when they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. And surely this is what Jesus was warning against when he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, give us today our daily bread. It's to say, don't make me so poor that I curse you, but don't make me rich either, because then I'll forget you. But instead, make me just poor enough so that I rely on you. That's a radical way of thinking today, isn't it? Don't make me poor because... I'll steal, I'll profane your name, but don't make me rich because I'll forget you. Make me just poor enough so that I still depend on you, so that I still remember that I need you. Now, there's a thought that I guarantee a third of the room is thinking. And it's, surely I could have riches and remember God. If that's you thinking that, then you've forgotten the first point. 
surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One. How weak and foolish we are if we think that we can have our arms wrapped around God and yet have one eye still on lesser things. And you know, when you know God, when you know and see him for all he is, his beauty and his goodness and his majesty and glory and graciousness and faithfulness, you wouldn't care one bit if you had riches or if you hadn't. Agor says, Lord, do whatever my weak heart needs to know you deeper. Clear the stage of my life from all the clutter, all the sins, all the distractions so that you are the sole performer. And in losing all of those things, I know that I'm going to gain something greater. So from this wise wise passage of God's word in Proverbs, we've seen four things. We've seen the foolishness in you, that you are so weak and so foolish when you rely upon yourself. But we also see the greatness in God, how mighty and pure and faithful he is to us who deserve nothing from him but condemnation. But instead, he chooses to make himself a shield to us. And Agor's two requests from God. Let me not be deceived and let me not forget you. Both with the aim of knowing God more deeply. So the final question is, what are you going to do with this sermon? What will you do with Vin's sermon this evening? When he speaks from Jonah, will he think, oh, they were nice. They preached well. And then they totally slip from your mind and it's back to your normal week. Or will you take hold of them? Take hold of God's words to you because they're pure. And if you trust in them, they become a shield to you, don't they? Will you take hold of them and make effort with God as your shield and your strength to make your life conform more to Christ's by striving both to see yourself clearer and also to know God deeper? Shall we pray? Father, how weak and how foolish we are. Lord, help us to see and be struck by our deep depravity, that we have nothing, that we can bring nothing, that we can do nothing of value, nothing good of ourselves. And may that lead us to the spring of life, that is from you. May seeing ourselves how we truly are lead us to seeing you and treasuring you more deeply. May we see the greatness in you and may we seek to rid our lives 
of falsehood, of lies, of the pleasure of sin, the pleasure of riches. Father, may we clear everything away by your spirit, by your help, because we need it so much to see you truly and to know you deeply. And may we glory, not in wisdom, not in riches, but may we glory in this, that we know and understand you. In Jesus' name, amen.